Greetings, everyone. Just real quick before we get started. Just wanted to let you know that we talked long on this one, so we'll be splitting it into two parts. The next part will come out next week, and then you can expect us to continue the book further the week after that. So we're splitting part one of the book here into two different episodes, and we'll continue next week. Thanks. Welcome back to Following Noah Dawn, a Stormlight podcast. This week, we are beginning Secret Project 3. I will talk about the title here in a second, but if you accidentally clicked on this video, Secret Project 3 is what we're talking about. If you're not here for that, uh, please excuse yourself. We will be doing The Well of Ascension uh, after we are finished with Secret Project 3. So if you are wondering where your Mistborn content is, we will be reconvening likely in about two months would be my guess uh for how long this book will take us but who knows we will see how this goes paul how are you uh so good i i'm really excited i've enjoyed mistborn don't get me wrong but i'm excited to actually dive into secret project three and like a, a brand new novel release for sanderson it's the first time i think me and elliot have gotten to to be a part of that, being like the first to to read something. And there's only a couple books that I've gotten to be a part of that as well. Um, uh, there's probably four or five uh, by now, but uh, Elliot, how are you? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm feeling the same thing that you're talking about, Paul, which is I've never been like part of the hype leading into a book release like this. I've never been interested in a book ahead of its release before i don't think ever i think i've always ever discovered books after their release sometimes well after they're, they're released oftentimes well after the author is is dead and gone like this is a little bit of a new experience for me it, it's a lot of fun that that's a good point i i did i was thinking of sanderson specifically but like books in general this may be my first like book reading a book on release experience We have lots of itinerary to talk about um, and the format of which we will be going through this because it's going to get a little bit confusing with some of the quotes that we're going to come up with because some of our quotes will be different than our fellow podcasts hosts quotes because of how early release book works. So uh, bear with us as we try to explain all that uh, for you. Paul, do you have someone on our Patreon mug? I never thought you'd ask, Trevor. I'm so excited <laughs> uh, because we do. We have a um, new surgeon in our midst, and I'm actually really excited about this name, just just point blank. Um, so we've had some names that are, like, really funny. You know, shout out to Shoop Doop Magoop or whatever his name was back a while back. Uh, but this one I feel like was pretty apt for our podcast specifically. It is um, sometimes right, and and I feel like here on the podcast we throw lots of things out there, lots of predictions, but those predictions are sometimes right. So so I feel like that was pretty apt to to the podcast in general, and we really appreciate your support. 
Yes, thank you. There's a pun somewhere in there for thanking sometimes right for supporting us, but uh, it, mm -hmm. I'd have to think about it for more than 30 seconds. Yeah, do your research, come back next week. I will. I will. Okay, gentlemen. Time to talk a little bit of format here on Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. We are recording this in June of 2023. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, the book only came out in July of 2023. How are you doing that? We did not get early copies of the book. We are looking at the preview chapters from last year that were released over a year ago. And we are taking that as canon. Now, those the words we have just read and are going to be discussing this week are certainly likely to change before the book is going to be released. And we will be discussing that next week if and any changes are made from what we've just read to the published. I will be rereading uh, what we've gone over in part one here, and then I'll bring to you guys anything that I find, um, and we can discuss the differences and what they mean. That being said, there are already differences from the things I've read and listened to and the things Elliot and Paul have read and listened to because there are two versions of this book. One is the written version on Brandon's website. The other is the audio version on Brandon's YouTube channel. Between those two versions, there are differences. And some, some of them are pretty inconsequential and some of them are fairly like have some meaning behind them um, or have the potential to, I guess. So we will be discussing some of those differences. And I, I understand that by this time next week, they will be inconsequential differences because we'll have the published versions, but um, we are still going to be discussing them and talking about uh, the changes um, and et cetera, et cetera. Does somebody want to start with chapter one? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. You got it, Paul. Go Actually, let's it. start with chapter seven. Are y'all cool with that? Um, sure. <laughs> no, 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 no. In all seriousness, chapter one, um, you're kind of introed into this book with um, classic Sanderson, like a, a pretty good, like you're dropped into a totally new world and he uses a good, he uses good descriptors, but not like dwelling too much. We've talked about that before, so I'm not going to elaborate too much. But Brandon Sanderson is pretty good at describing the world kind of on your feet, like as you're going through. So we're dropped into this, and this is how I picture it. Y'all may picture it differently, but I kind of picture the like less populated, like rural edge of like Tokyo or something. Like it, it mm -hmm. gives me like a city, like apartments downtown area energy like city lights the the whole thing is that there are these lights my understanding going through the sky like neon lights that are like what cyan and fuchsia i think mm -hmm. are the colors um and just very like we're following a, a 19 year old named paint his that's like his like street name kind of right isn't it yes. painter so I actually have a, a little soapbox to stand on here real quick. It's pretty clear 
within like chapter three that we're just going to call him Painter because everybody calls him Painter and he calls himself Painter. But his name is Nikaro, N-I-K-A-R-O. And I think it is tragic to come up with a cool name like Nikaro, Brandon Sanderson, and not use it. Why are we not using the name Nikaro? Instead, we're calling him Painter. So I will be calling him Nikaro throughout our... Uh, journey here, and if you're confused on who I'm talking about, I'm talking about Painter. I, I do think that is funny. That. Another thing I think is kind of funny is the title of this book is Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. And so that's like his occupation, right? We're kind of dropped in, and he is a nightmare painter mm -hmm. who goes around defending the, the land from nightmares by painting them as other things, which will I'm sure we'll talk much more about uh, in the very near future. But I thought that was kind of funny. I feel like if I was um, an engineer and I was like, yeah, my street name is Engineer. You know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I feel like you could have come up with a cooler name. Like, they just call me just Firefighter. His... Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just his occupation, which I thought was really funny. Um, Anyways, that that's just like the general setting is we're just dropped into this world. We'll talk about the other in a second, but we we kind of see uh, switching point of views between Painter and Yumi, and Yumi is set on what is it, uh, like a, an entirely different planet from what we know. Um, but we're kind of dropped into this guy's this guy's life just right quick. He's just kind of strolling down the street, um, and we learn learn briefly about. A nightmare painter. Yes, indeed. We should talk briefly too about the the point of view that we're seeing this from. Yes, and we we know that the the narrator is Hoyd. What we don't know is who Hoyd is talking to, and we we mentioned this. We talked about it for a little while. When we did our preview episode on these the these chapters back a year ago, but it just sticks out so harshly in this this reading that Boyd makes so many references to not just other Cosmere stuff. He references stuff on Roshar. He references stuff on Scadrial. He references stuff that seems like it's from modern day, like our world, like trains and buses and car crashes and he even at one point, I don't think I caught this the first time around, talks about the physics of seeing color as the photons bouncing off of your eye. Yeah. Like that's some that's some modern day science kind of stuff. It's I, I feel like the I, I thought I had I had uncovered all or most of the layers of this this Hoyd person, but he he knows what photons are. He knows what photons are. I I will talk about this more after we've talked about all the chapters uh, on who Hoyt is talking to and when. Um, but I do just want to say we don't know the timeline yet. We don't know where this sits and when this sits in the Cosmere. So this could be maybe, f you know, five years after Stormlight 5. It could be 5,000 years after Stormlight. Wait, no, we do have a timeline. We have a. We have a shattering date in here, don't we? I don't remember that. However, we do that sounds helpful. Before you mentioned that, my thought was 
that this must just be some like era three level stuff, like like right. way in the future. We maybe we don't. We have a we have a seventeen centuries since virtuosity virtuosity splintering herself. We we have that as on the calendar, um, and it's been a thousand seven hundred years since that event. But I don't know when that. So maybe we don't have a timeline. Maybe we don't. Um. Anyway, I, do get I don't recall one. We know it has to be after Stormlight that we've seen, of course, because design is there. Correct. He's he's Hoyt has found design. Bonded design is off on adventures apparently with design, although apparently frozen in time or something. We'll we'll get there. So so you mentioned the name the name there, Trevor, but we have a shard, right? Virtuosity. Yes. At this planet. What what does virtuosity do? I feel like I need to Google that word. So we talked about it a year ago when we when we had this discussion. Um and just a quick definition for you it it spawns from the word virtuoso or like artistic master masterpiece um so it's the and i'll talk about brandon sanderson's spoiler q a he had for this um secret project a year ago as well i'll talk about some of the stuff he talked about in there but basically he was going he was bouncing back and forth between calling it virtuosity and art or and artistry um he was going to he was considering calling the uh, shard artistry um so if that helps you picture exactly what this shard is then there you go it does yeah the the physics and the the astrophysics of this world are pretty unique as well we we should talk about that before we go too far into it and we we, we kind of analyzed it before a year ago when we went into this ranks help uh, helped us out with his uh, with his video and we spun some theories there, but I, I actually realized I had something to add to what we had talked about before in that before we talked about there, there's something funky going on in this world where potentially there's a like duology going on or a dichotomy where there's there's opposites everywhere. You have the the, the hot, bright planet and the dark, cold planet, and you have the bright red sun on Yumi's planet, and you have this strange dark star in the sky of Painter's planet. And I'm trying to wrestle with how this how this works on like an orbital mechanics scale. How mm. are these two planets existing in the same solar system, but seeing different suns or stars or Maybe there's a black hole involved here or something like that. It gets really, really tricky. And last time before we talked about the idea that maybe Yumi's planet is orbiting around the sun that they're orbiting around, and maybe Painter's planet is further out, and Yumi's planet is perpetually blocking the uh, the sun, it's eclipsing the sun and so that painter's planet never never sees the the sun i talked last time about how that's not actually possible in orbital mechanics and as i was listening back to our episode i realized i was slightly wrong about that i was slightly wrong about that it when you're when you're traveling through space 
Yeah, go ahead. Did you assume that both planets were the same size, and that's why? No, I assumed that the planets did not have any pull on each other. Oh, okay. So if you have two, if you have a body orbiting around a large body like a sun, the speed at which you orbit is completely determined by the distance you are from it. And so if you're further out, like Andrew's planet would be, you can't travel at the same speed as the inner planet would be. That's just not how orbits work. In order to stay out in that orbit, you have to go um, faster, slower. You have to go a different speed. What I forgot is that it's not a two-body problem. It's a three-body problem. And so because there is another body at, at play there, there's a sun, there's a planet, and there's another planet, there actually is a way for this to work. And it's called Lagrange points. If you, you open up the picture that I put in the, the Discord, this is the title picture of the Wikipedia article for Lagrange points. This is a, a little map of the Lagrange points of the Sun-Earth oh. system. This is the telescope so, thing. Yes. So the way this works is when you have three bodies going on or two large bodies and one small body that's you that's orbiting or your telescope there are actually five different points five lagrange points where the pull from the other two bodies balances itself out and you can live in a stable-ish orbit at that single point so you'll see them labeled here as l1 l2 all the way up to l5 now in real life we use these lagrange points for a couple of different things. The James Webb Space Telescope that just launched is at L2, the Lagrange point number two, because it's a stable spot where it can sit, look out from Earth, and always you know, block the sun from behind it with its big old fancy shade that it's got. L2 would potentially work as a location for Painter's Planet. That spot always orbits on the other side of, in this picture, Earth. But if you assume that Yumi's planet is where Earth is, and Painter's planet is at L2, it actually could ride in Yumi's planet's shadow the entire time. And so what he sees in his sky is Yumi's planet, and the sun is on the other side of it, so he doesn't actually get the light from it. Now, it's a little more complicated than that because with three-body orbital mechanics, things get really complicated because... This diagram I'm showing you right here kind of assumes that your satellite basically has very small mass right. in comparison to the Earth and the Sun. In the case of a planet, that's no longer true. So would an L2 Lagrange point still work with a full-size planet? Eh, maybe, maybe. But this could maybe work. This could okay. maybe work. Um, qu question. Would it also work if Painter was orbiting Yumi? And Yumi was orbiting the sun? I tried to wrap my head around exactly that. I, I can't think of a way in which Painter would never see the sun in that scenario. If, he, if Yumi's planet is so bright, right, and you're orbiting it, like there would definitely just be... There, there's no way you'd be dark all the time, right? Exactly. That there would be a time where you're orbiting Yumi, but the sun is in view. The sun is always going to come into view at one point unless you're sitting at the Lagrange point number two. Okay. So this is a good time to bring this up. 
Um, let's do something else, Paul. I, w- I was going to say, I totally chalked this up to um, fantasy. Magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, um, you know, that, that Yumi is in a lovely place with a lovely sun and um painter is in a lovely place with the, with no sun or maybe not so lovely place depending on whether or not you love the sun um and i was well, like that's great add, that's awesome <laughs> i'll add one more thing too because last time we we theorized about could there be a black hole going on here could we really do have a mirroring and that there's a sun and there's yumi's planet and there's painter's planet and there's a black hole if that's true now you've got four bodies. Now it's a four-body orbital mechanics problem. Now it basically is magic. Like we don't, right. we can't even calculate that in our world here today. That there's way too much going on there. So could we just say, yes, it's in an orbit where this works? Sure, we can't we can't disagree. Well, well, one one other thing I actually want to add to this. Um, so I had noticed this is actually a snippet from chapter four. Yumi is talking about these rocks and i i don't remember the scene that well but i remember one certain thing stuck out to me which i wrote down she was talking about gravitational equilibrium yes she said yokihijo stacked rocks and um all that i took away from this in conjunction with just how our story is lined up there's these like two planets that are i'll say connected I don't know. We don't know how for sure, but I remember, I will never forget. I don't remember when this was. It was probably two years ago. We talked about this. Trevor talked about some of Brandon Sanderson's failed magic systems and how he (laughs) wanted. I'm so happy that this one stuck in your head because it sticks in my head too. Yes. He, he, Brandon Sanderson, I guess, pitched a magic system and the whole magic system was that there are two planets just end on end and so when you move on one, it then moves the other. And my understanding is that was just about it. That that was that was the whole thing. <laughs> that yep. was the whole gimmick. Um, and so whenever she was talking about these stacked rocks and stuff, I was like, maybe that's this. Maybe Brandon Sanderson wrote the book, and maybe these worlds are touching. Maybe maybe they're more way more connected than we think. Maybe it is in that L2 spot and just kind of like clings on and is always in the dark, you know, but mm-hmm. um, but those planets are just connected and stuff. So, Okay, so there's a couple questions that Brandon Sanderson got in his live stream that I'll be bringing up throughout the, the episode today. The first one has to do with our, our dark planet and our light planet. And he was asked, is the dark planet simply in darkness because of the shroud quote unquote the big the big smoke screen over the planet or is there something more going on and he basically answered the shroud yes affects the light of the planet but there is something orbital going on that was his answer so he he's basically basically said yes and yes if that helps you with your your theorizing and then the other or another relevant question he got was he got asked is yumi using investiture to stack specifically stack the rocks is she is she surge binding is she is there an allomantic power hit at you know some some equivalent um and brandon sanderson said at no point do you see 
Yumi use investiture? I'm sorry. At, at no point do you see Painter use investiture at all. And at one point, you see Yumi use investiture in these preview chapters. At no point in these preview chapters does Painter use investiture, is what Brandon Sanderson said. Interesting. I also I thought have, that was interesting. I would have guessed that the other way around, that we were seeing no investiture on Yumi's behalf and uh, a small amount of investiture being wielded by our painter. Fascinating. I can I can actually see it. I don't know if we want to skip ahead to that. But we can, we'll, we'll talk about this later in Chapter 7, but with painter kind of scaring off a nightmare it, it does almost feel like it was kind of accidental or could very much be credited to like like a lucky spook kind of thing so and i don't know that i've seen use of what i would think of as like oh he's probably using investiture i haven't seen anything other than that maybe that moment um to point to i want to jump into chapter two real quick and I just wanted to highlight, I really appreciate, and I think Brandon Sanderson has grown significantly in this as a writer with the confidence of how he uses his words. He is very, very good at this point in time, 2023 Brandon, at his, how do I say this? At the words he chooses to use for the reader. He's he's very good at quips now, I in my opinion. He's very good at visually painting a scene um, without really describing that much. Like we, we get the we get the phrase "cold springs" instead of uh, on Earth we would know hot springs and springs because all springs are cold until you find a hot spring. So on he, on this planet, just just the simple fact that you're using "cold spring" tells you. All springs are hot until you find a cold spring that you can make a little village around. So there's these colder springs because the whole planet is so hot that any water that comes up is too, you know, boiling or steam at this point. But if you can find one that's, it may still be, you know, 150 degrees when it comes to the surface, but at least it's not vapor, right? Like, that just the simple fact that he used cold springs as like a term that these people would use tells you so much about the planet. And I really think that's really strong writing. Um, he uses the term hot barons um, as like what the wilds are uh, in this world. There's, there's the small circulated spots around cold springs and then everywhere else is the hot barons and you can travel through them. They'll, it'll be like uncomfortable and dangerous, but it won't be like, like life um life altering dangerous i guess like you'll get burns from the sand or whatever but um and then there's a couple different things um that are interesting in yumi's religion that i wanted to highlight but did you guys have anything else i'll just add that i i noticed some of those things too those just different ways of referencing things that makes you stop and, and think for a second or some of the small glimpses into the way of life of these people that makes you, you know, think about what life is like in their shoes, like the the floating trees and the floating plants that they have because the plants can't live on the ground or they just get fried. Or I love the scene where there's it, it's describing the town around this geyser and how all the houses have like these big copper 
basins outside of their house so that when the geyser erupts, it catches some of that water. I mean, you're on a super hot planet. Water is going to be a potentially hard to come by commodity or at least water that's in a usable form. So catching that water and then trying to you know, use it is going to be important for the way of life of this village. Just cool stuff like that. I agree. I want to compare the two planets real quick. Uh, Nightmare's planet seems way less hospitable, gives me Threadity vibes. Um, maybe not quite that extreme. They, they seem to be have reached an equilibrium um, with the leaked investiture, but may, maybe I'm being a little optimistic. And then there's Yumi's planet, which seems to be livable, if not, you could even use the word peaceful, and everything is revolving around... Um, Yumi's the the religion that Yumi is a part of, and she's um, she has the title chosen. Um, there's all sorts of things we can go into there, but um, I just wanted to th I just wanted to highlight that the planet. I, I think it's a really interesting choice by Brandon Sanderson that the planet that has all the issues and all the struggles. There's not a one mention of religion, and the planet that is like super peaceful and prosperous. All we talk about is the religion. There is like 30 uses of the word religion or religious or spiritual or you know, all, everything revolves around Yumi and her life as a chosen. And that's the more peaceful planet as opposed to the nightmare planet, uh, the painter's planet, where everything is going to come to life to kill you. Based on the notes that Brandon has at the end of the writing on the on the website, I would go so far as to say, I bet that's going to be a core theme, if not the core theme of this whole book, because he goes on to talk about how this is going to be a little bit of a, a body swap story where Painter, spoilers for these chapters here that we're talking about at the very end, wakes up on Yumi's planet. Well, Brandon describes that it's going to be the inverse as well. Yumi is going to be on painter's planet and they're going to be living each other's lives and so i bet that's going to be a huge part of this is painter's going to come from a world of no religion and so he's going to think all the things that yumi has to do are ridiculous and silly and meaningless and yumi's going to have to like convince him and teach him why all these things are important and then over on painter's planet yumi's going to want to find religious significance and everything and painter's just to be like no just go paint the the nightmare just stop worrying about it just do your job kind of thing it may be a really interesting story between the two of them yeah i agree i, I know we're kind of all all over the place here but i want to go back to um painter's planet real quick because there there was a line or at least or like a paragraph that i did not catch until my probably fourth read of this my first one being you know a year and a half ago or whatever and I've read this three times for this recording. And I didn't catch this until my third one. And I was like, what is he talking about? So I had to re-listen to this. But there's a there's a quick like dial internal dialogue from uh painter, and he says the external or the 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 outside of the city is just that there, there's no walls because nightmares don't care about the walls and everybody stays in the city and everybody's pretty peaceful, so that there's no walls. The exterior of the houses on the perimeter of the city, 
the painters use as like blank canvases to pass the time. Like if there's no nightmares in the city at that point, then they'll just go paint random stuff on the exterior of the um on the exterior of the town. And he said all of the buildings that aren't that don't have art on them are whitewashed. So there's a bunch of whitewashed um like basically blank canvases and then he drops a mention of yeah my my project that i was working on i need to go whitewash that again or else someone will see it and then he moves on and i was like what did you did you, oh. either of you catch this yes and i think we might have an answer to that okay wait wait okay I'm thinking through this. Remind me again of what the quote was or what you were just paraphrasing. So Painter thinks to himself, or as he's walking past his own painting, he, he realizes, oh, I need to put another coat of white on that because it's starting to seep through again. And he said the the project I was working on was a painting of the star, the, the one star in the sky. And he wants to cover it up either because he's not proud of it or be, or some other reason. But I don't know how or why you'd want to cover up your one picture of the star and, like, why that would be a big deal. Yeah, I, I, I guess I was mistaken. Initially, I, I was thinking it was something else. Um, so what I'm thinking of is in Chapter 7, um, the, the nightmares, it seems like they, f they gain power and it feels like they're fed by, like, I guess I don't know the Cosmere science on this. It feels like they're fed by fear or like mm -hmm. going into the whole cognitive realm, like people are viewing it as scary. Therefore it is, is kind right. of almost my depiction of this. And so my thought was maybe he's going around and re doing stuff. So someone doesn't see it and maybe get afraid of it or maybe see a problem in it and believe a problem in it therefore creating a problem but it's it, it gets a bit uh messy there i have some questions about painter's past and i think the the painting you're talking about trevor might be part of it there's a few mentions either i think they're all inside you know painter's thoughts that seem to reference some kind of failure or mistake or doubt it, even just in like the way he thinks about his job painter or what's his cool name nicaro 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 painter nicaro he's 19 and yet he almost comes off as like jaded mm -hmm. he's he's like burnt out on this job and yet he talks about Oh, the years of training that have led up to this and the things I've seen and, oh, this is, you know, the, the slog through my day job kind of thing. You're 19, bro. What have you, <laughs> what have you lived through that you're so jaded and, and scarred by all this? There's, there's gotta be something. Let me, let me read a couple sentences. This is the very end of, of chapter one. Being a nightmare painter might not have been as solemn a job as he made it out to be it helped him to think that it was made it feel less like a 
a mistake, particularly during those times when he went to bed and regretted the decisions that had forced him into a life where he'd spend the next six decades on this street every night, backlit by the Heon. Ion? Ion. Heon? Heon. How does he say it? Sanderson says it Heon. We'll, We'll go with that, man. Backlit by the Heon alone. It's just like, man, what what decisions did he make that makes this life he's in a mistake? What happened? I'm wondering if that painting is part of it. Mm. I wonder if he couldn't paint that because of something he's done or has happened to him. There's another reference later that I'll try and remember to mention it because it's all the way at the very end. But yeah, there's I think there's something in this past despite the fact that he's so young. Yeah. I... I almost get the implication that the, nothing so dramatic has happened and he's just depressed. Like they like there hasn't been like something like a big event in his past. He is just he's been at this for maybe 2 or 3 years now and he is beginning to face the fact that there's no moving up. This is life and that's depressing for for him. So I that that's the more the route I'm on. I I thought similar similarly to Trevor on that. I, I took it as he's still like a young guy, new newish at this, you know, but but just kind of burnt out on it. Um All right, well fine. Make me make me convince you. I'll pull out my other uh my other item from later on, even though we're jumping around. So at the end of chapter seven. He, we'll, we'll get this. We'll, we'll get the details on this later when we get there. But he finds the nightmare that is more solid. He tries to. He bravely tries to paint it to control it. He manages to scare it away, but does not successfully like capture it. And then that hits followed by this. This sentence appears in that that sequence after the the nightmare has gotten away. Only the most skilled painters could actually bring down a stable nightmare. And he'd learned, painfully, that wasn't him. Mm. I don't think that sentence is referring to the scene we just saw. I don't don't think he's talking about the failure he just did. I think there's a much more painful encounter that he has had with a stable nightmare in the past. That might be what all of this is referring to. He's he's jaded, burnt out, depressed because he, he's had a really nasty encounter with a stable nightmare. That's my theory. Okay, I not sure if that convinces you any further, but um, that's my attempt. It, it does a little bit, and I'll, I'll pull this a little bit further and say there's there's a problem in that. Um, Nicaro has indicated in his internal dialogue that there's been no like dramatic disaster of a of a nightmare True. rampaging in like thirty years. I think is the name yeah, is the that. time frame we get. But that doesn't exclude him like maybe failing to defend a friend or a sibling or you know something of mm-hmm. that trauma um, that could lead to this, and maybe mm-hmm. that's what led him to go be a painter um, as I need to be better at this. So that's that this is my calling. I, I would go more the route of 
maybe there was a sibling or a you know a family member a friend that he failed to defend from a nightmare maybe that he summoned himself as a kid mm. um i i would go down that route as opposed to, like that's not a big catastrophic event in the in the realm of everybody but it is for him and that's why he's here um and maybe it's not coming as naturally for him and that's why he's super frustrated with it and what if taking this even further what if that's why he feels like he has to do something in this scene that he sees right he looks in that window and he sees the nightmare going after the child with the parents right there what if he's lived that as the child right or something like that we, interesting we know that his both his parents are alive um but yes the, well, he talks about them in the other city he does they they're a short yes. train ride away is the quote um but yes they're in the next town over but yes the, the uh, I'm, I'm still on the boat of that there could be something traumatic there going back to chapter two just pick up a couple things before we move beyond that paul did you do audio for this one or did you read the uh like ebook type i did do audio the whole way through um and i have to say just just my very short note uh it made me really miss michael kramer a Mm -hmm. lot (laughs) i love you brandon sanderson you're an amazing author um but i i miss michael kramer it just felt way more clear just just real quick in uh-huh. in Brandon Sanderson's live stream, he was asked, "Would you ever consider recording for the audiobook?" And he said, "No, <laughs> that is that is not <laughs> what I do." So yeah. I, I'm fine with reading a story for you know four to five minutes at a convention, but he he does not view himself as a as an audio professional. Yes, yeah, and I understand, and there's there's no harm at all. It, that's not that's not a any major discount to him at all but anyways um i did read audio the whole way through um that's that's funny you mentioned michael kramer because i've heard enough of the audiobook for michael kramer's voice to kind of be the narrator in my head for most of these books that we read stormlight mistborn that's actually not the case for this i don't know if it's because i've heard brandon read it on his youtube page or i like to think it's more of for some reason, I've latched onto Brandon's voice as the voice of Hoyd in my head. So when I read Hoyd, I hear Brandon. Mm. And so I actually, this entire story that we're reading now, I I hear it in Brandon's inflection and tone as he's reading this, just because it kind of has that little more kind of cheeky style that Hoyd likes. And so anyway, I asked if you were audio because... There was a word that jumped out at me because it was capitalized, which I'm sure doesn't come across in the audio. And that was chosen. Yumi is chosen with a capital C, which, again, as we've learned, maybe just kind of tells us that it's religious, that it has some sort of affiliation with the religion. But I'm also always curious if there's more to it than that when a word is capitalized. Is there some kind of additional meaning behind it perhaps but i was curious if you had any thoughts about like what chosen means yeah i i'm I'm glad you brought that up so right now i would chalk it up to it's a religious thing well okay i think 
it is a religious thing, and these people here know it as a religious thing, but we, the reader, may learn that it is something else. I'm almost thinking to, in, um, if you think briefly about Stormlight, it lifts awesomeness. His mm-hmm. lift is awesome, and like mm-hmm. she knows it as such, but we, the reader, know it's something else. That's how I'm kind of understanding this as chosen. Um, is they're like, oh, she's special, and they don't. They might. They probably think they know why. They probably have an explanation as to why, but it may not be completely right. If that makes sense, it may be. It's probably an investiture thing. Is always going to be my guess with that. I, I have a question. Did we we got a definition of chosen that she was chosen from birth, right? And that this is her station. This is she's this she's been at this for a while. Did we get? a functionality of that who did the choosing and what happened not that i know of i don't know that there was you are right that it was like a from birth like chosen from birth is this like do spirits show up and choose or is this like part of is is, does a priest show up and choose or like i'm curious to know if this is investiture choosing or people choosing what comes first the investiture or the choosing i don't know that's a good point oh i did find it the one that had appeared right after her birth the one that had marked her as chosen by the spirits i think it's talking about us so a spirit appears at birth and making her chosen i believe so okay interesting Although, it's actually, the writing here is weird because Hoyt, like, interjects with a thought. But I think it's actually referring back to just a sign. It says, Yumi did believe in signs. The one that had appeared right after her birth, the one that had marked her as chosen by the spirits. So, maybe a spirit, but not necessarily. But it could be like a birthmark? Could be. Is that the line where it says omens are appear at the first where, where you're first looking for them i thought that was funny yes i think that's yes that's related to this yeah that's right before this so it could also be like an eclipsing of planets or stars or something like that it could be a sign that happened right after her birth but it looks like some kind of external force not necessarily a priest or something like that okay interesting but it made me think of Spren and our Knights Radiant, how they as the Spren essentially does the the choosing there, which I thought was really interesting. But lots and lots of parallels between Spren and these spirits yeah. in this world. On both planets. Yes. What was... Go ahead, Paul. I mean, I was going to say that the, the connection between these spirits and Spren is eerily similar if not right. like this whole time i've just been like are these spren and later when they begin to talk like has she bonded to spren like that's been that's even, been my questions with you my like question number one even down to the fact that like creation spren i think they're called mm-hmm. on roshar 
they're drawn to the act of creation. Yeah. The, the more creative and the better the art is, the more virtuosity it is, the the more spirits you draw, just like Spren on Rashar. So I'm going to pull in a question that was made for, for Brandon on the live stream. He was asked if the if the art itself, the stacking of the rocks, summoned the spirits or just the or just art being present was um was summoning the spirits. And th there was a follow-up question that said basically if Yumi and five of her friends were in a rock band and put on a 30-minute concert, would would she summon these spirits and Brandon Sanderson basically said yes. It doesn't matter the ritual that she's doing specifically; they're just attracted to the art. So that so with that, I agree with you that these seem to be near identical to Creation Spren on Roshar. And there's an interesting there's an interesting parallel there as well that. There's low spren on Roshar, like wind spren and creation spren and, and flame spren that, that kind of just react to nature or or humans interacting with nature. And then there's high spren that can, and that, that term's a little misleading, but like, you know, higher spren that can, you can have a conversation with, or at least a short, even a short conversation with. And there's an interesting there's an interesting choice of words with between both of these planets that say the spirits don't have eyes. And then in chapter seven, the nightmare does have eyes like these, these white glossy eyes, which is epic by the way, that's so creepy and awesome. Um, but that, 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 that's a big deal for Nicaro. Who's looking through this window. He's like, Oh no, somebody's about to die. Like this is a big problem that this spren has just popped eyes out of its head um so i'm wondering if like i, I assume that the nightmares are gaining sen sentience sen sentience however you say that word um and the and eyeballs are are an indicator of that because yumi also mentions that the spirits don't have eyes but they can look is is the quote from yumi it's almost like that that being that nightmare is progressing from a low spren, if you will, just kind of a at the beck and call of the forces around it. it it's like taking steps towards being a sentient spren. It, right. It's becoming an active participant in the world and one that seems to be full of either evil or just destruction. One of the two. I was thinking the same thing there, Elliot. It feels like the a move between and and, and my mm -hmm. if we want to zoom out for a, a brief second and, and just talk about or, or or if I just talk about briefly, like what is my thing with this book? Like what is my question? What is it, do I, what do I feel like it's showing? I feel like it's exploring so much just with almost how the cognitive realm works just how, how cognition works in relation to spren or investiture. It almost feels adjacent to all of that, where things that are being pictured are coming to fruition 
um, in in kind of real time or things like that. And so so that's been kind of my overall thing is the more it is maybe creating nightmares, the more it's being viewed in that way, the, the, the quote feedings. I don't know what a feeding entails exactly. Is it consuming a nightmare? Is it being feared or viewed as a nightmare? Is that what is feeding it? Um, but that's my I'm understanding is it. You, you mentioned lift at one point. I almost felt like it was something similar where lift uses metabolism to feed her investiture. What if these beings are, are literally feeding off of dreams and nightmares and fear as their investiture fueled development, perhaps? Yeah. That, I actually wanted to yeah, ask you guys. Exactly. Yeah. Paul, you were you were asking about cognitive realm and, and stuff like that. I actually wanted to ask you guys, do you think there's any possibility Painter's Planet is in the cognitive realm and that they're not actually in the physical realm? Oh. I thought about this at one point Weird. because of the, the sun. He sees a dark sun in his sky which is what we get described in Shadesmar on Roshar-ish. Does he see? I don't think he sees. He just sees a star. Well, right. So I don't know how big it is. But when he looks in his sky, he sees... I have it in front of me to read it. But it's, he, it's specifically described as not a sun. It's a bullet hole bleeding pale light. So I, I took it as, for, for him to see that kind of thing, it seems like it would be larger than just a speck in the sky. It's it's bigger than that, but it's dark at the center, and it's kind of bleeding light around it, is how I imagine that. Hmm. Which is not all that different from how I imagine the sun looking in Shadesmar, which is why I bring up that question. The more I've thought about it, the more I'm thinking that he, they're not in the cognitive realm, but still maybe. I, I would probably put all my chips on permanent eclipse. That's what I think is happening. I'm, I'm fairly confident permanent eclipse is is the situation here. But putting him in the cognitive realm is an interesting thought, and that would give more substance to the nightmares if you're already in the cognitive realm interesting 